passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Great to be with you this morning as we continue our four-week series looking at our uh, five-year vision as a church, kind of laid out from our elders. And so we're in week three this morning. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, really identifying or or looking at the the seven areas that our elders have kind of laid out for us for the next five years of, of really what boils down to who do we want to be and what do we want to be known for in our community. And, and this morning, we really want to focus on that second part. We want to focus on what do we want to be known for? What, what do we want our church to be known for in our community? What are our responsibilities, both as a church as well as, as individuals to those who are around us? Or maybe to, to put it another way, we, we're asking this morning, what is our responsibility as a church to be for Christ as well as for our communities. And I want to say communities, not just our community, uh, because we are a multi-site church. What does it look like for us as a church to be committed to being for Jesus as well as for the good or for the sake of our communities. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the, the fact that we've been entrusted with this mission. We've been entrusted with a message, and that this is a vital question for us to answer. What is God calling us to be in our community? What would it look like for us to be for Christ and for our communities? And to answer that question, I want us to start by reminding ourselves of of this radical confidence that we have to have as individuals as well as as a church in the sovereignty of God. That God is large and in charge, that God is in complete and utter control of the cosmos. That God is in complete and utter control of of every single thing, from the the greatest events of history all the way down to the number of breaths that you take each minute. That God is in charge. And if God is in complete control of every single thing in the world around us, then that means that he has placed you, every single one of us, he has placed us exactly where he wants us. God doesn't make mistakes. And God has placed you wherever he wants you to make an impact for his name and for his glory and for the good of those who are around us. Wherever you are, God has placed you there for a reason. God has placed you in your neighborhood He's placed you right next door to those neighbors that you get along really well with and those that you might not get along all that well with. God has placed you in your vocation for the sake of the gospel. God has placed our church here in Spencer with a mission for the sake of the gospel. And as we consider the implications of that this morning, We're going to tease this out. We have to start by asking ourselves, do we really believe that God has placed us here? That God is in complete and utter control and that God has a plan 
And that we are to be faithful to that plan in our interactions with our neighbors, our coworkers, students, those that you go to school with. What does it look like for us to be faithful to the plan that Jesus has entrusted to us as the Lord of the entire cosmos? If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter is this book that's written to a church that is on the fringes of society. They're not in the places of power, they're on the fringes of society, but rather than, than panicking about the trajectory of the world, Peter instead reminds the church of really two things. First, he reminds them that God is in complete and utter control, and that second, because God is in complete and utter control, he has a plan for them in the midst of the tumultuous age that they find themselves in. I was true in the first century. It's also true in the 21st century as well. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. In this text, we're going to consider three reasons why God has sovereignly placed us as a church and as people in our communities. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would speak to your church this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to your church. Even more, God, we ask that you would enable us through your Holy Spirit to respond to the message of your word with faith, with obedience, and God, we ask all of these things through Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen. All right, well, Peter begins this section by reminding us of this magnificent identity that we have as the people of God in the church. It's a good place for us to start as well. Before we get into the imperatives of the gospel, of what we must do, Peter reminds us of the indicatives of what has been done for us. This is how Peter begins. He reminds us that in Christ Jesus, God has created this new people. That's what we see in verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. Peter's words here are full of meaning and power about our identity as the church. Peter relies on his Bible. He relies on the Old Testament to describe what does it mean for us to be a part of the family of God, of the people of God. Consider just 
for a moment what God says to the people of Israel in the book of Exodus immediately after he rescues them out of slavery to Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They're now in the wilderness right before they receive the law on Mount Sinai. It says this in Exodus chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see the parallels here between what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 2 and what he read in his Bible in Exodus chapter 19 about what God says to this people that he has called out of slavery into this glorious life as his people. Peter is relying on his Old Testament to to say the exact same thing, that God, just as he set apart a people in the Old Testament for his glory and for a specific plan and purpose in the world, God is going to do, God has done the exact same thing with us now. He has set us apart. He has taken those who were not his people. He has made them his people because he has a plan. And he has a purpose. And Peter tells us that God created this new people with a purpose. It's his purpose that transcends place and time. It's, it's what we see in verse, uh, verse 9, this idea that, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has placed you wherever you are. He's placed you exactly where you are for the sake of proclamation. For the, for the sake of telling people what Jesus is like and what Jesus has done for you. Verse 9 again, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've talked a lot over the last couple of weeks about this, this mission that Jesus has given to us. That Jesus doesn't just save us to rescue us from this unthinkable end, even though that is certainly true. He has also rescued us for a purpose. And part of that purpose is for the praise of his glory, that God is worthy of worship. And so he saves people who will worship him. And one of the reasons why the church exists is so that we can declare that God is worthy of worship and of praise. To proclaim that all of the excellencies of this God who has called us out of darkness and into this marvelous, magnificent, beautiful light. Peter's words here in this passage, they're not just for a a select few. They're they're for all of God's people. All of God's people have been entrusted with this mission. This mission of proclaiming the excellencies of what God has done. Of sharing the story of what Jesus has done for us. As God has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. All of us have been entrusted with this mission. All of us are priests of the living God. A kingdom of priests. So that we can be for Christ and for our communities. And it all starts with proclamation. 
But it doesn't end there. Immediately after Peter's words about what God has done for us in Christ by making us this new people, he gives us this paradigm-shifting description of our status in the world. And he says that we are sojourners and we are exiles. Let's go ahead and take a look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So what does it mean to be a sojourner or what does it mean to be an exile? A sojourner is this person who's temporarily living in a country that is not her home country. Notice the key word there. It's temporarily. She will one day return to her homeland. But Peter doesn't stop there. He not only says that we are sojourners, these people who are temporarily living in this place that is not our home country, he also says that we are exiles. If a sojourner focuses on this idea that we are in this temporary place, which is not our home, this word exile emphasizes the fact that we are, we are out of place. That this is not where we belong. We become increasingly aware of the place that we call home. Here, in a very earthly sense. You ask me my address, I'll tell you what my address is. Increasingly, I recognize that that is not my home. There's this really great book out there. It's, it's called Evangelism as Exiles. And, and in it, uh, there's this former missionary, his name's Elliot Clark. And he talks about this mindset of being an exile and how, how crucial that is for us to be on mission, not just on the mission field, but, but really to be on mission here in the United States. And, and not only is it helpful, he says it's increasingly necessary for us. So Clark served as a missionary in Central Asia for a number of years, and then he returned to the United States. And, and when he came to the United States, he discovered that he was actually in a much better place he was much better equipped to be on mission here in the United States than most Christians who had never left. And that's because he realized that he had to embrace this role as a sojourner. He had to embrace this role as an exile, that he was profoundly out of place in the world, that he had learned to be on mission without cultural power to be on mission without the ability to influence people, by being pushed to the margins of society, even facing hostility as a follower of Jesus from those who are around him to this message that he was proclaiming. How do we as a people live as sojourners and as exiles? Well, being a sojourner and an exile doesn't mean that we do all that we can to fit in. That's very clear from what Peter says here in verse 11. He says, I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I don't, I don't want you to live this life that wages war against your soul. It also doesn't mean that we isolate ourselves and say we don't want to have anything to do with this corrupting nation that we are a part of. And it certainly doesn't mean that we are hostile toward our community. He says that we have this special responsibility as those who are sojourners, those who are exiles, as we long for our true home, that we have this, this special responsibility that has been entrusted to us from God. And thankfully, we can begin to tease out what exactly that responsibility is by looking to the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, we have this season of life in Israel's history where they were sojourners, where they were exiles. They had been kicked out of their promised land and had been exiled into Babylon. And in that time, they learned that God had a a plan for them. It's actually really interesting. Jeremiah chapter 28 and 29 begin to describe God's plan for his people while they are in exile. This is this devastating moment. Babylon has come in. They've destroyed Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple. They've taken a number of people out of their promised land and into exile in Babylon. And these false prophets actually begin to crop up and say, hey, you know what? Just a matter of time, and then God's going to make everything all right. God's going to bring those who are in exile. He's going to bring them back. He's going to restore us to our former glory. That's what what happens in, in Jeremiah chapter 28. This false prophet named Hananiah begins to talk about what God is going to do. There's just one problem. God never promised that. In fact, we get to Jeremiah chapter 29 and we see God's actual plan for his people. Not only does he say, hey, you're going to be in exile for a while. He gives us these shattering words, this this unbelievable mindset when he says this in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7. What should you do when you are in a foreign land? says this, but seek the welfare of the city, and that's Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Babylon has just conquered Israel. They've destroyed Israel the temple. They've conquered God's holy people, this nation that has been set apart. And you would think that God would respond by saying, hey, you know what? When when you're in exile, I want you to show the same sort of contempt to the Babylonians that they showed to me. But God has a different plan. In his sovereign plan, he plans to use his people while they are in exile as a transformative force in Babylon, in this pagan nation. He doesn't seek the destruction of this pagan nation. Instead, he he wants them to seek the good of this nation. Far from isolating themselves from this corrupting influence of Babylon, they're to do all that they can to seek the welfare of Babylon. And that's exactly what they do here. Just read the book of Daniel. Daniel is a story of this young man who is from Jerusalem, from Judah. He's kidnapped. He's brought into Babylon. He's raised as a pagan. And yet, rather than defiantly shouting down the Babylonian king, he's, he's so confident that God is in control of his circumstances. God is in, so in control of his situation that he concludes, God has placed me exactly where he wants me to be. And he wants to use me as this transformative influence here in Babylon. And for decades, Daniel interacts with multiple kings of Babylon and of Persia. All the while, he's he's seeking the welfare of this community. He's seeking the welfare of this pagan, corrupt nation, Babylon. I, I oftentimes wonder, how, how often did Daniel get disillusioned with the corruption of Babylon? 
Over and over and over, these pagan kings, they exalt themselves again over and against the one true living God. Did Daniel ever wonder if he was making a difference? Did Daniel ever think, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and stop seeking the welfare of this pagan place because it's just better off being destroyed. And yet through it all, as you read through the book of Daniel, you see these moments of impact from Daniel's faithfulness as he is seeking the good of the community in which God has placed him. Over and over and over in the book of Daniel, we see declarations like this from pagan kings. It says this, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. happens over and over and over over the course of decades as Daniel is seeking the welfare of this corrupt and pagan nation. And we don't live in Babylon. Have you ever considered that God has the exact same plan for you here in this community. That God has placed you in this community for the exact same reason. Not to rage against a culture that doesn't really want much to do with God, but to seek its good. Not to isolate yourself from the corrupting influence of an increasingly godless culture, but to get your hands dirty and seeking the good of this community. Notice again Jeremiah's words to the exiles. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Let's go ahead and keep that up for a moment. Notice this complete and utter confidence in God's control, even in this awful situation. The people are to seek the welfare of this city where God has sent them into exile. That God is the one who has placed his people in exile and he's done it for a reason, to seek the good of their community. And the same thing is true in the New Testament. Same thing is true for us today we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that God has placed us exactly where we are for the good of our community? That's the heart of being a sojourner, of being in exile. Not to rage against, not to isolate from, but to seek the good of your community. To be winsome, gentle, kind, to be a transformative influence for the flourishing of our community. 
to allow yourself to be in situations where you may get disappointed by the lack of progress in transformation, but to be fully confident in God's plan that he has placed you here and now. Sojourners, exiles, recognize that we are living in a foreign land. Spencer, the United States, not our true home. But God has placed us exactly where we are for the flourishing of our community, to seek the good of our community as a part of God's sovereign plan. See, God has he's placed us here in this community for the sake of proclamation, for the good of our community, And then Peter focuses on one more thing in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says that we are to live such honorable lives That when people see how we live our lives, even when they speak against us as evildoers, our conduct is so upright, it's so above reproach, that it actually leads these people to glorifying God on the day of visitation. There's a little bit of debate on on what exactly does this mean, glorifying God on the day of visitation. Some say that day of visitation here is referring to the day Jesus is is going to return. And so if if that's the case, then it it means that Peter is saying something like, when when Jesus comes back, your good deeds will actually serve as, as proof positive to those who are around you that Jesus is worthy of glory. But I think a better interpretation of of day of visitation for a number of reasons is this declaration from Peter that sometimes… God uses our good deeds as a way to legitimize the gospel message to unbelievers. That your conduct can be a legitimizing force for the message of the gospel to the point that when people hear the message of the gospel, they will respond with repentance and faith on the day that the Holy Spirit enables them to do so when they hear the gospel. I think this is the broader context of what 1 Peter suggests. This is actually at the beginning of this section on conduct here in 1 Peter. And and just a few verses later, he's talking about uh, a specific example of husbands and wives. And notice what he says this. Likewise, wives must be subject to your own husbands so that, this is what I want to focus on, so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice this word conduct. He he repeats it twice. It's the exact same word that that Peter uses in chapter 2, verse 12. He's saying that Christians, even as sojourners, even as, as exiles, we should be so known for our good deeds in the community that it legitimizes the message of the gospel to unbelievers. 
maybe to put it even more strongly, God has placed you exactly where you are so that he might save some. That we have this expectant hope that God will save some. And he will use, in his mysterious providence, the good deeds, the honorable conduct of his people to bring it about. What an incredibly sobering responsibility that God has placed us exactly where he wants us to be so that he might use our good deeds as a legitimizing force for the message of the gospel. Valley Church uh, in West Des Moines, it's an e-free church in our denomination, and I love the way that the pastor there has worded this truth. This is kind of their banner of how they focus on engaging their community. They say, good works produce goodwill, which leads to the good news. Good works won't save people, but it does create goodwill in our community for the sake of the good news. It creates an avenue It opens the ears of those who would be unwilling to hear the message of the gospel. It's a legitimizing force in our community. A few weeks ago, I was speaking with a friend. He's a missionary in a closed country. He said that when he moved to that country several years ago, he felt like God was calling him to really take seriously the charge to 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 do this very thing, to live out the message of the gospel, to build goodwill with those who do not believe the gospel so that he might influence them for the sake of the gospel. And so he decided to open up his home. And over the course of several years, he had dozens of different people come and live with him. Over the course of that time, he had hundreds of dollars stolen on from him multiple occasions. The people that were living with him just decided, hey, you know what, this is a good opportunity to take this which isn't mine but I need it, or so I think I do, and they ran with it. And rather than trying to get even or trying to just shut everything down and say this, is, this just isn't worth it, this person said, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to model a sacrificial heart to those who do not know Jesus. What if God's calling us to something similar? What if God is calling us to be willing to sacrifice, to sacrifice greatly for the sake of those who are around us? See, this isn't just true of us as individuals. It's also true of us as a church. What would it look like for our church to be known in our community for our good works? That the modus operandi of our our church would be to, to serve others. In fact, that's the legacy that's been handed down to us from the early church uh, I've been reading this book, finished a, a, a week or two ago, called The, the Triumph of Christianity, and um, it's hit or miss on, on quality. But uh, one of the things that I found fascinating in there is it, it, it details or outlines 
the way the gospel spread in the first, second, and third centuries and how often it spread through the good works and the good deeds serving as this legitimizing influence in the community as a whole. I want you to just travel back with me for a moment to the, the Roman Empire, this, this time before modern medicine, this time before things like indoor plumbing. And, and Roman cities were, were absolutely crowded. They were, they were filthy. They were crime-ridden. They were disgusting places to live. Mortality rates were so much higher back then. And compassion, mercy, wasn't the norm. It wasn't built in to the fabric of Roman society. In fact, mercy from, from Romans was actually considered not to be a virtue, but a defect. It was a character defect. One person describes it this way. Classic philosophers taught that, quote, mercy indeed is not governed by reason at all, end quote. And humans must learn to, quote, curb the impulse. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered, end quote. Quote, pity was a defect of character unworthy of the wise and excusable only, it was excusable only in those who had not yet grown up. End quote. This is the culture that the church enters into in the first, second, and third centuries, and that leaves virtually every single person to fend for themselves because if you aren't able to take care of yourself, then the, the culture of that day said you're not worthy of life. And into that, this, this message of the gospel of a merciful God calling his people to be merciful is radical and transformative. God has shown mercy to us. That's what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy and as those who have received mercy we are to show mercy to others galatians chapter 6 so then as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith and the early church took that to heart cyprian of carthage he was from the early 200s he was a pastor he, he said this there is nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attention of love Thus, the goodwill was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. A pastor in Rome in around the year 250 said that the Roman con congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. The heart of compassion and goodwill was especially evident during times of plagues, which were actually relatively common back then because of the lack of, of medicine. They would ravage Rome. They would, they would ravage all of her empire. And Dionysius, he was a pastor in Alexandria in the third century, and he described how most pagans took care of their own people. Their family members. At the first onset of the disease, pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. In contrast, notice how that same pastor describes what his congregation was doing. Most of our brothers and sisters 
showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The compassion and mercy, this honorable conduct became a legitimizing force for the many in the Roman Empire. They're not just skeptical of the message of the gospel, openly hostile to it and seeing the mercy of God on display, taking care of those who could not take care of themselves through tangible acts of service and sacrifice for the sake of unbelievers in their community was this moment that that God used as this vehicle to bring about transformation in the lives of of thousands, of tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands across the Roman Empire. And it was all because the church was confident that God had placed them exactly where they were, exactly where he intended them to be for a purpose with the hope that God might save some. And as we close, I want us to just ask, what about us? Do we have a radical confidence in the sovereignty of God that he has placed us exactly where he has intended us to be so that we can make a difference? Here's the message that must sink deep into each of our hearts. God has placed you exactly where you are for others' good and also for his glory. He's placed you in your neighborhood for the sake of proclamation. He's placed you in your workplace for the good of our communities. He's placed this church in this community that through good deeds we might serve as a legitimizing force for the message of the gospel so that God might save some. God has placed you exactly where you are for others' good and for his glory. In your bulletin, and if you're watching online, these are in your, your sermon notes, you'll notice that there's this prayer card in there because I think that's where we have to start applying this passage, this message to our hearts this morning. Consider where God has placed you. Those that you interact with, that, that God has, has sovereignly placed you in this position of, of, of close interactions so that you can seek the good of other people. And take some time to consider and to write down the names of one, maybe two people and commit to pray for them. Pray for opportunities to do good to them. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in their hearts so that they would be open to the message of what Jesus has done for you. You might ask, well, how long do I do it? That's between you and God. 
But I do want us to consider the example of George Mueller. He was an evangelist and an orphanage director in Bristol, England in the 1800s. Mueller writes this, In November of 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, and wherever or whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. At the time of this writing, these two remain unconverted. But the story doesn't end there. After his life, Mueller's biographer writes this. Thirty-six years later, he wrote the other two, sons of Mueller's friends, were still not converted. He wrote, but I hope in God I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he had begun to pray daily without interruption for these two men, they were finally converted. But after he had died, he dedicated his life to praying for those that didn't know Jesus. God has placed you exactly where you are for the sake of proclamation, for the sake of good deeds, so that he might save some. What is God calling you to pray about? And who is he calling you to pray for? To point to Jesus. But you'll notice on that card, this isn't just an individual commitment. It certainly is an individual commitment. It's also a commitment that we must take seriously as a church, that we need you to join us in prayer as a church, praying regularly for how God might use our church in our community that good works would lead to goodwill for the sake of the good news. That you would join us in praying that God would guide us as a church to how we can make a lasting impact in our community for the sake of our community. In the 300s, there was this pagan emperor, his name was Julian. He was increasingly frustrated by what we, just, we looked at earlier about this, this heart of compassion for the ch- from the church and serving its community. And he actually wrote to the pagan priests in modern-day Turkey saying, hey, we've got to do something. We've got we to compete with them. We've got to show that same compassion. We've got to show that same kind of mercy that we see from the, the Christians. He wrote this, the godless Galileans, and he called them that because they came from Galilee and because they didn't worship the pagan gods. So they were godless Galileans. The godless Galileans, in addition to their own, support ours, and it is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. What if? What if? God would do the same thing through us as a church and as individuals that we were so radically committed to the good of our communities that we as a church were known for self-sacrificial service of giving our lives for the sake of others. God has placed you exactly where you are for others' good and for his glory. Let's be on mission for the sake of his fame and his glory 
here in Spencer and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Jesus, in your mercy, we ask that you would help us Help, help us to be a people of sacrifice. A people of good works, both individually and, and corporately. That you might use those good deeds, those good works, that honorable conduct as a way to, to legitimize the message of the gospel in the eyes of a world that's increasingly hostile toward it. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.